we should read our Bibles. As men digging for buried treasure. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Take no part in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but yet expose them. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Life's a garden, man. You gotta dig it. Hello fellow treasure hunters, welcome to the excavation site. I'm Justin, alongside me we got Ben, Stephen, and Chad. We'll be your guides on this excursion. Hope you brought your shovel and your compass, because we got the map. Let's dig. What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long distance pals? We're back. We are. Feels like I just saw you yesterday. I know, right? These two days. These two days are killing me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ben, he's still feeling under the weather, so no Ben this time again. No, but uh, I am excited. I'm excited about today. Yeah, speaking of uh, long-distance pals, we got a really long-distance pal with us here today. (laughs) As far as it goes. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. And we'll, uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. Uh, we just pray that uh, you give us discernment over your word and uh, we uh, get some uh, nuggets revealed to us today, Father, and it draws us closer to you, uh, digging into your word. We thank you for our guest today, taking time out of his schedule to sit down with us and uh, talk about these things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you want to introduce our guest, Steve? I'm going to give you the honor. I had the honor last night. Oh, it's my turn? It's your turn. Well, uh, ladies, brace yourself, because not only do you got the the southern draw, you're going to have uh, a man from the land down under today. So just lay back and relax and enjoy the smooth, mellow tones. We got uh, Tim Stedman from Australia with us. How you doing, Tim? Well, g'day, mates. Uh, It's great to be... uh meeting with with all you guys and yeah i'm really looking forward to this oh yeah uh uh for you that don't know uh tim uh wrote the book uh answers to giant questions he's also uh, got a podcast with the same title answers to giant questions uh man wrote a an amazing book uh that i just like i tore through in no time i couldn't put it down uh so we had to get our schedules together that way we could uh, sit down and talk about this but i've been looking forward to this for a long time uh for those that's uh, a member of our uh facebook community tim's on there you've probably seen him and uh, maybe said hey or seen him in some conversations on the forum uh tim's also got a forum uh answers to giant questions get on there they're digging into a lot of good stuff on there too uh but i guess to start off uh, the obvious question uh, the title, you know, answers to giant questions. What uh, inspired you to to write this type of book and this subject matter? And you know, why is it, uh, in your opinion, important to understanding the Nephilim enlarging the faith? Mm, good question. Yeah. So I think I was 
frustrated with the lack of uh, accessible resources on this topic. Uh, it started out with an occasion where I was uh, preaching to a local congregation, uh, friends and family and that, you know, uh, and I was uh, talking about the obedience of Noah, the great flood, uh, and, and that whole story. And I just wanted to bring something out about uh, Noah's character. But you can't talk about the flood without the rationale behind the flood and the effects of it and all that. And coming to terms with a God who is prepared to wipe out every living thing. Uh, you, you can't just gloss over that. You have to talk about it. And in the understanding that I had at the time, I, I really felt that I had no option other than to say that, uh, you know, these people that perished in the flood must have just been really bad, you know, and God couldn't save them. Uh, you know, they had their chance and, and they said no. So God just killed them. You know, those, those words had hardly got out of my mouth and I thought, you know what, that's just wrong. <laughs> and I need to seriously search the scriptures and and you know seek god on this because i don't think that that's consistent with the character of god you know the same god who forgives us of our sin and you know i believe in his goodness and i believe in the integrity of his character and i just thought well there's something i don't understand about this flood story then it is really going to help me reconcile these two views of god where on the one hand he's the I suppose the the angry god the the god of vengeance and on the other side you know you have the the god of love and forgiveness and i thought no this is the same god so i need to have a consistent view of scripture and you know i was sort of plowing through uh, those early chapters of genesis looking for a clue looking for some reason why i'd, I'd kind of missed uh, something about what god was doing with the flood and I hit that word Nephilim, you know, <laughs> and it's like a I little blurb like, in there, isn't it? You miss it if you ain't paying yeah. attention. <laughs> yep. You know, just that one word and all the translators just want to leave it alone. Um, you know, they translate everything else and just leave that there because they don't want to touch it. And, uh, you know, of course, the King James just comes out and says giants. Well, I saw that and I was like, now, come on. Uh <laughs> You know, the King James is, you know, oldie-weldie kind of language. And I thought maybe they've just kind of misunderstood this or whatever. I don't know. It just seems really far-fetched. I, you know, didn't have that um, fully formed supernatural worldview uh, that we've all come to know and love uh, in, in recent times. Um well, it was just never so talked I, about, you know what I mean? It, it was mm. like an alien to us the first time we heard it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I had to do a lot of digging uh, to get anywhere with someone who would actually provide a detailed study and show their findings on what that word actually meant. And that's how I come across Dr. Michael Heiser and uh, all his work. And so things really snowballed. Uh, from there and I started doing so much research and writing so many notes and after about 10 years of 
doing research and writing notes, I thought, oh, I should probably just write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heiser was kind of the thing that started snowballing us as well. Um, just the unseen realm and and things of that nature are just, it, it blew my mind. And, 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 you know, it's something that it's like, it's like listening to a broken record because everybody who's read it said, you know, I'm reading the Bible with a whole new set of glasses on. You know, I'm seeing things in a whole different light and everything's starting to make sense that before you would just gloss over because there's certain things like you talked about. Why would why would God kill every living thing on earth? Or, or later on when we get to the land of Canaan, why would he say to kill every man, woman, child, and animal? Don't bring anything back. I mean, it, it seems so inhumane. It doesn't seem like a loving God would do that. However, if you know the story and you understand the reasons, it makes sense. But if you don't, it, it, it seems like, Oh God, slow it down a little bit. But, uh, but in all honesty, I think that, you know, looking at your book and reading through your book, it's such a good, um, kind of definitive way of, of looking at kind of all the different aspects and you went right through and, and kind of showed from right from the beginning when we talk about the part of Genesis all the way through showing the, the, about the, you know, the Amorites, the Amalekites talking about everything through Canaan and, and going all the way through to, you know, even more nowadays. So, and, and that's something we'll talk about here in a little bit. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, um, I just think that it's a, I'd definitely recommend it to anybody who's especially getting into this and, and really trying to understand uh, where that, where all this came from and, and why we, when we read our Bible, some things don't make sense. And I think that's kind of what you had said. I think in the early part of the book was, this is crucial to our faith. This is crucial to help strengthen our faith, to understand God, to understand why things happen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, if you don't understand the, the giants, then you don't understand, you know, the whole Bible or the world or, or whatever. You know, you, you've got some people who will say that understanding that is the only way to really know anything about the Bible. And you're not really a, a, a true member of, of God's church if you don't understand all these things because God makes us where we are. All, all this stuff just really helps them make it all coherent you know but uh i i would never uh claim that this kind of understanding is like uh you know the the gateway to the true faith or something like that I, you know i i get that from some commentators you know there's some guys on youtube who are just kind of like well you know if, if you don't believe in giants you know then you're not even a christian that sort of thing no 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 that's not that's not yeah. where we're going with that at yeah. all and my thing honestly yeah. like with me and i know like you said god meets you where you are i like that you know everybody you know has got a a love language you know or a, a learn language some people learn better by observing some people learn better by getting their hands on it you know and god is the one that created you he knows how to, how to talk to you, how to get to you, and how your mind works. And like me personally, understanding all these stories and connecting the dots, you know, I've said it time and time again on the show, it, it draws me closer to God. It makes me have a better appreciation for God. And uh, I've used this, you know, example. It's like, you know, the, the stories of the Bible and, and the faith it's a it's a mosaic 
you have all these little small pieces in when you're just looking at the piece you know you don't know what it is but when you start putting them together and you stand back you can make out what it is and all these right here the giants and the the second temple you know uh world view you know the supernatural all these little things are little small puzzle pieces you don't need them and you can see the whole picture but if you yeah. actually collect those pieces and put them in you might see a little something in that painting that you never noticed before and you're like oh that's beautiful yeah that's right it just illuminates the whole thing doesn't it yeah and, and it helps us to appreciate and the Bible as an intelligent work of literature, you know, when you see what people are doing within the text and you, once you get to appreciate the mastery of it, you know, uh, it's, it's just amazing. The, the more I study the Bible, the more I love it. A hundred percent. I think that, and that's a lot of what, you know, we always try to focus and, and always make sure that we start with everything uh, from a scriptural base, but we, we definitely still use the references. And I think that you said that you said that really well at one point, you said only scripture will be treated as um, authoritative. Anything else is reference and context. And you said that specifically, it's a, a line out of your book, which uh, I think that, that's so important, but the thing is, I like looking at you know when we use you know First Enoch a lot, or we use Jubilees, or we use Jasher, or some of these other apocryphal books. All these different pieces of of ancient or historic literature, they just lend to the Bible. They continue to prove the Bible's true. They help strengthen that. And a lot of it, when we go in through, and you you think about. The whole section of the of the giants, when we're talking about the base story of the giants, what eight verses, you know, in in in, uh, in Genesis six, and then if you can go past that and obviously see it in so many different parts of the Bible, but it's skipped over when you know we don't talk about it a lot. But I think it's I think it's so important when we look at kind of how everything trended towards the flood and seeing that. And I think that that's where things like Enoch and Jubilees really come in and help strengthen that picture. Cause I believe at that time, all those pieces of literature were common knowledge to the people of the time. So the Bible didn't have to elaborate cause everybody at the time knew, well, there was giants. So in the oral tradition, the oral I mean, tradition, this, this something well known to the people, this, everybody knew this, they didn't have to rehash it. It would have been like beating a dead horse. It just didn't make sense. So, and then when we also see the, those, those same books, you know, with Jude and, and, and Peter, you know, referencing, you know, first Enoch, you know, throughout the Bible, um, it just helps kind of strengthen that connection. But going in a little bit to what you um, kind of brought about in your book and some really interesting, good points that I really like was I first want to kind of look at the bloodline of Cain and kind of see where the giants fell in. Cause that's, I used to jump right into the Bible. Okay, we listen to creation. Now I'm going to go right to Genesis 6 because I think it's cool. And I'd skip mm. I'd skip that Genesis 4 section there, you know, Lamech. All of a sudden, yeah. he's got two wives. You know, he's kind of uh, trying to break every covenant God had in place at that time. I I'd like yeah. you to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, that's, that's something I'm... Um... Uh, getting deep into at the moment on uh, on my own show, actually, on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And um, I, I don't mind uh, 
spoiling uh, a little bit what uh, what's coming up in this season. But I've spent uh, the last couple of months uh, diving extra deep into Genesis four um, for that reason, like trying to help listeners to the show understand the foundational nature of of that text. You know, the whole primeval history, those first eleven chapters of Genesis. Uh, I believe that those are there to provide the interpretive framework for the rest of the Bible that basically helps you to see the bigger picture throughout the, the biblical narrative, just repeated in bigger cycles, right? So we start small, we start with little stories. So as far as Cain and Abel is concerned, we've got a man and his brother. We see them coming before God in a, in a time of hardship. They had, uh, they were keeping flocks. They were working the ground. And, and this is just lost in our English translations. Those those days came to an end, and they were looking to God for His favor to to sustain them. You know, they're looking for a good season next year, that kind of thing. So they bring offerings, right? That's the pattern of life in the ancient Near East. So they bring offerings, and it's the the faithfulness of Abel in his heart that God acknowledges. You know, and you, you see the author of Hebrews. Uh, expands on that and talks about Abel's faithfulness. And uh, Cain, on the other hand, he's kind of just going through the motions and, you know, I did the thing, so I expect the result, that kind of attitude. And that sort of shows in a in, a, in an in-depth exploration of the, of the text, you can really pull this apart. We haven't got time for that, but uh, certainly if you want to uh, check out some of the recent episodes of the podcast, they go into some depth. Uh, just exploring the symbolism and the significance of the particular words chosen to to tell this story. Yeah, we see that uh, Cain's offering was not looked upon favorably by God. So you know he gets he gets upset. And to put it mildly, the text, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the text kind of gives us the impression that this was like an immediate thing, like it just happened all on the same day. Like they bring offerings. God doesn't like Cain's offering. Cain gets upset. Cain goes and kills his brother. But this is a much longer story. You know, I think we're talking about, you know, months, if not years here, where Cain is struggling to survive without the favor of God on him because he hasn't been faithful. He hasn't been relational toward God, right? Abel, on the other hand, in, in his faithfulness, he's, he's prospering. And so, you know, Cain starts to get pretty angry about this. And he realizes that he's not getting anywhere with God. So he's got to find some other way to sustain his crops and, and the people that depend on him. We have this tendency to read scripture as though there's only four people alive in the world at this point. And I don't think that the scripture actually supports that. Cain worries about who's going to find him and kill him after his murder day. Is he worried about mum and dad? Like, I think there's more people out there and they're just not central to the story so they don't get mentioned, you know? But yeah, this this idea that Cain has to find some other god who's going to bless him to uh, to sustain him and and his way of life. This really touches on on the heart of Israel during the the period of the judges and the kings, right? You know, you've got this constant lapse into idolatry and seeking other gods, not trusting Yahweh, uh, looking elsewhere to get what they need. And you see this uh, epitomized in Cain, right? So 
when we look at the nature of what happens uh, in the murder of Abel, we find that this is like a uh, a ritual killing that is enacted, and there's certain ritual language uh, in the text, which is kind of obscured again in the English translation. It's it's just so hard to capture all of that meaning in English because we have such a wide vocabulary and it doesn't have all the nuance that you get in Hebrew. But the Hebrew language is so small. A lot of the words do double duty and they mean more than one thing. And when you listen to it spoken, you, you get all those connotations. We tend to rely on reading an English translation, which has very specific definitions that don't capture it all. So a lot of this is lost on us. You know, we don't realize what's going on it looks like a violent murder um, and it is but there's a ritual context here and the authors in the new testament pick up on this you see it in the words of jesus in uh, jude and peter uh, and the author of hebrews uh, matthew records in his gospel you have all this connection to this religious aspect of the murder of abel so we're talking about a human sacrifice here and the idea was that this was a ritual enactment of what Cain wanted on his land, right? He wanted life and fertility restored on his land. And uh, as you all know, and I've heard you talk about it before uh, on your show, uh, blood represents life. And we have a tendency in our uh, modern situation, you know, we, we think about blood as something negative like it's the loss of life it's death you know it's destruction um but the, the flip side of that is that blood is essential to life and therefore it represents life so the idea of a ritual uh, sacrifice was to shed blood because you wanted the god to bring life on the land now of course this wasn't directed toward yahweh Right, we're we're talking about a different God here because Cain's already demonstrated that he's unfaithful to Yahweh. So when we think about it, where are we going to find a God of weather? Because he needs rain, right? This is the reason for the bloodshed. Like it's symbolically wetting the ground with something that gives life. Okay, uh, and a God of fertility, right? Because he he needs good crops and. And, and all that kind of thing, right? Uh, in the ancient world, particularly in in a world dominated by Amorite culture, which you find uh, all through Canaan and also Babylon, and, and you know, I believe that this is written in the context of the exile, or you know, maybe post-exile. Um, the the god in question. Is probably Baal, who uh, we know from the New Testament is uh, roughly equated with Satan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're talking about some pretty deep connections back to a satanic ritual sacrifice. And this was the kind of stuff that uh, people were doing uh, in in the pre-exilic period in in Israel's history. Right? They're looking for someone to bless their land uh they weren't prepared to be faithful to yahweh and live in his blessings they wanted something else they wanted immediate gratification they felt that they couldn't trust god if they had to wait it out and be patient and develop a godly character they just want it now they want gratification you know the greedy 
and sounds like this generation yeah yeah very much <laughs> See, i love how your mind works right. Tim. that's awesome man that's awesome i think that shows too that when you talk about the you know we've said this before and i think um Derek gilbert brings it up a, a couple times too is that you know you look back through history and it was you know prior to jesus you know it was always a sacrifice it's a blood sacrifice to atone for your sins and the devil always just turns things around and you it, it, and he wants to be as you know he wants to be revered as god he wants to be god so you would have these you know like you said that's a ritual sacrifice there's always blood is always the the key you know what i mean that's always what's used um and you know in the end it's the blood of jesus you look at the very first sacrifice that was that was when god gave them animal skins when they left the garden that's the first sacrifice that happened he he uh, animal gave its life so that they could have clothing. God did that for them. There's there's so many different uh, ways that you see, and I, and we've talked about this a ton of times. And like you had even said, blood's the key. Blood's always been the key. And I think we talk about those. Um, we've talked about that numerous times recently about the like the Ove of Endor and and what that meant you know the ritual pits and the blood sacrifices to call on their familiar spirits or but also you look on God's side you know it was always oh a, a, a sheep without blemish or a ram without blemish was the blood sacrifice it all comes back to the blood and I think that that's really important as we talk about going down further down the line um, about some of the bloodlines too right as we go down through and we start looking at um, with Lamech and potentially the first family uh, that may have been interacting with uh, the fallen angels when they came down. And I think you kind of went into that a little bit in your book here. And mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So um, it's not made explicit in Genesis, of course, it, it's really picked up on uh, in, in the Enochic literature in the Second Temple period. But you see uh, traces of it as, as you go back. And you, you've got to remember that the people who are writing all this stuff in the Second Temple period, they are drawing inspiration from Scripture directly, right? So you can trace all of this back from the Genesis account if you know how to read it uh, and and how to listen to it and and that's the real challenge because as I say you, you pick up an English Bible and, and it's really hard to find but uh, yeah what what you see as Genesis 4 progresses and we have the uh, descendants of Cain uh, and I've, I've talked in great depth uh, on my podcast about how uh, I don't get into the uh, serpent seed doctrine and that kind of thing. You know, I, I don't believe that these people are the offspring of the devil or anything like that. Um, they don't need to be, honestly, like we're all capable of, of evil, right? And what we're seeing in uh, the, the line of Cain is people who have just lost their way right i mean cain goes into the the land of wandering and he's now living this meaningless purposeless existence uh he's effectively become um iconic of 
decreation, uncreation, right? He's, you know, his, his descendants all sort of represent what, what happens when you, when you go away from the good order and purpose that God brings to our lives and you see this constant desire for more. You know, it's not enough to have one wife. You've got to have two. It's not enough to uh, live on the land. You've got to develop technologies and amusements and, and all this. And what we see in Lamech's family is the origins of civilization. And we've got things like metalworking and music and uh, trading and commerce and that sort of thing. You know, that idea of uh, those who live in tents, you know, we're talking about people who move from place to place and, and trade things and, and all that. So, uh, yeah, what we're seeing there is uh, all, all these things that people use to support themselves when they're not faithful to God, relying on him. You know, Jesus said the, uh, the birds don't worry about what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat. And, you know, the, the flowers look beautiful without any clothes and all that kind of thing. You know, the, the world that God had uh, wanted for us was one where we would be faithful to him and trust him to provide for all our needs. And what we see in Lamech is this desire to build artificial structures, uh, cities and civilization and tools and, and all these things uh, to try and become self-sufficient and to, uh, to be your own God. But then there's, there's something missing still because you realize that uh, there, there are other people around and you need to have power over them if you're going to get your way. And this is where a connection to the divine becomes desirable because if you want to exercise power over others, then you need to have something that they don't. You need to have some power or some authority. Uh, and of course, it's not a uh, an atheist kind of world out there. Like it's, it's very much in touch with uh, the divine and people are aware of the gods. So... It becomes a natural progression then for um, Lamech and his family to uh, desire contact with the gods to give them some kind of uh, authority over uh, the civilization that they've created. This leads them then to start interacting uh, with foreign gods uh, who we would know as the sons of God introduced to the story in Genesis 6. What's not explicit in the text is that these sons of God uh, appear to have been at work for quite some time in the background of the Genesis story. And it's only when we get into the context of the flood that they're actually uh, named as such and, and uh, given a share of the responsibility for what happens in the flood story. So do you think that it's... Uh... It was just something that uh, they just kind of eased their way into, and then they just got so, I don't know, flamboyantly obnoxious toward the end. They thought they were untouchable, and they were just uh, running wild, and that's when God had to slap them with the hammer, so to speak, that they they thought they were just the rulers of this world and, and nothing was going to get in their way or stop them. Yeah, I think that... Uh... 
all sin and corruption starts on a small scale and becomes bigger, you know, uh, in, in your own life and, and, and in my own experience, um, you know, sin begins with entertaining a thought, doesn't it? And, and then it's kind of dwelling on it and acting on it. And, and before long, it becomes a way of life if you're not careful. Um, and I think that the situation that we have in the ancient world, uh, and according to my reading of uh, the Garden of Eden story, uh, again, we haven't got the time to break that down in great depth, but uh, I view the Garden of Eden story as one in which the divine council is present in the garden yeah. and they are represented by the trees. Right, so God says to uh, the man, you know, you can you can eat from the trees, right? You can you can learn from them. You can take in what they have to share with you, except for this one, because you know, this is this is the one that'll kill you. Um, so these these members of the divine council had a purpose to edify and to build up uh, the the man and his wife and to uh to provide instruction and guidance and over time they start seeing the civilization that that man has built for himself and they start seeing the unique uh, status and and privileges that god has given humankind and they start thinking you know what i'd like to try that out for myself and on the other hand you've got the uh, humans in rebellion against God thinking, yeah, you know what? I could use some, some divine power. You know, I, I wish I was a glorious being like, like these angels or these sons of God, you know? So I, I think that on both sides, there is uh, sufficient motivation. So you can understand how these things happen. Uh, this is just, corruption that sets in when uh, desire meets an opportunity and yeah from there the whole thing uh, plays out and you, and you have a situation where Lamech is looking for something that's going to establish his family with a legacy and, and make them prosperous and secure and so you know he's looking for, um, for power for uh, authority for prestige he wants to be feared he wants to be respected um and the sons of god want to have that human experience and to know what it's like to be uh you know god's favorite thing <laughs> so so it's kind of like yeah. a betrothal thing going on you know it was yeah uh, what, what do they call it like the, was the bride's rice Mm. Yeah, Lamech was like, "Well, yeah, you can have my daughter. You know, you give me the the knowledge and the power, and then I'll, I'll give you the like the, the beautiful woman. Yeah, dowry. The that's dowry. the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I th I think that's that's exactly what was going on. I think. Yeah, which uh, I was want to touch on this because it was one of the first things in your book that stood out to me. Uh, you just mentioned the garden. You know. Uh, you know, God made us, you know, it says that he made us in his image, you know. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be the, you know, the representation of God on earth, you know. You know, and you said in the book, you know, Adam was more than a gardener. 
it was about stewardship. And you mentioned uh, Kings Park and uh, Queen's Garden in Australia. And I don't know if it's like that here, and I've just not noticed it, or if it's just, you know, something unique that your all's parks have. But uh, I loved how you drew the analogy, uh, which, I mean, you're from there. You could probably explain it better than I could, but how there's different sections and plants to represent uh, the the totality of the country, I guess, so to speak, and how that, you know, is basically a good parallel for, for eating. Yeah, yeah. So uh, because Australia is a Commonwealth country, um, of course, you have the um, the the head of the of the Commonwealth in in England, and uh, wherever they went and colonized, uh, they wanted to maintain a cultural connection and an awareness of that uh, authority and headship uh, of the monarchy. So, uh, you know, you could go to uh, to Canada or uh, you know. Any, anywhere else in the in the Commonwealth uh, for a time that would include you know places like Hong Kong, um, and and all over the world wherever the uh, Commonwealth was established, you would find these connections and and it's done in this symbolic way re- representative of that. So you know I can I can go to these uh, these parks that I talked about Kings Park or whatever and see planted there. Uh, trees from all over the world uh, which are, are placed there to be a reminder of our connections uh, and and dependence on uh, you know what used to be the British Empire I mean it, it doesn't exist anymore uh, in that form you know it's, it's become kind of archaic and um, not something we do anymore. It's not politically correct, you know. But uh, that's just following on the back of a tradition that has existed for thousands of years. So in the ancient Near East, they had a similar thing. You know, you had the uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon, that kind of thing, right? So the idea was they would go uh, conquer some place, or perhaps just have a favourable agreement or some kind of treaty with another nation. And they bring back plants, and and put them in the in the king's garden. And the king then has this role uh, as a gardener, where he tends to that garden, and this is representative of his authority uh, over that place and how he cares for them and provides for them. Right, so um, that was designed so that people who are from those places would understand that this guy's got their best interests at heart and, you know, they need to cooperate with him uh, so they don't get neglected. So, yeah, it was uh, an interesting little analogy because when you look at Eden uh, and, and you know, in, in that divine council setting, you see that it's representative of the world. So... We could imagine that Eden was the kind of place that uh, if you actually had a, a, 
physical garden with with trees in it they would be trees from all over the world you know as as representations of that idea hmm. yeah see i'd never thought of that when i read that's that actually, i was like that is really cool yeah that's cool a lot of symbolism and stuff there oh yeah you got another one well, I got I, a ton, you got, I got your a, notebook over there i, got a I don't want to hog him <laughs> i love this first of all and i say this all the time but the um the the giants and the nephilim in general are, are kind of my favorite topic when we talk about anything biblical it just kind of it, it it opens that world of fantasy a little bit you know and you hear um you know there's you think about stories and, and myths that we you know jack and the the beanstalk you know you hear these these stories these these mythological stories that have been passed down and usually there's a little bit of truth to any to any uh, myth there's something there's a seed there that caused those things but um kind of going we we've hit the flood right the flood happens because the the bloodline's been corrupted right by by the by the fallen angels um and we kind of see that as that kind of progresses but post flood right this is always the million dollar question we 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 ask this to multiple people and he but, actually addresses it yep but that's why i'm bringing that yeah, up but post flood awesome i want to kind of know your idea of how this carried on how we're why we see the the Amalekites, the Amorites, the, the, the different, you know, the Canaanite uh, tribes and stuff. I kind of want to hear, you know, your take on those things. Yeah, okay. So uh, having gone through and, and looked at other alternatives and uh, seeing the premises on which those are built, I sort of pulled down a, full, a, a few uh, worldview issues that kind of rule out some of the alternatives right you've got people saying oh well you know they must have uh, survived the flood or you know there were uh, giants living in caves because the earth is hollow or something like that or you know noah's wife was a giant or something like that you know i go through all these alternatives and and show from the text that they, they just don't work right um which of course leaves uh, the question of well how how does it work for me, this comes down to the guy that the Bible calls Nimrod. If you don't mind, I'll just read a, a few verses quickly uh, from Genesis 10, um, verses 6 to 12. The sons of Ham, Cush and Misraim and Phut and Canaan. And Cush begat Nimrod. I'm just sort of shortening this a little bit. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kalah and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. The same is a great city. Now, there's so much to unpack there. Um, but focusing on Nimrod, it says that he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And the real question is, how do you begin to be a mighty one? But specifically in the Hebrew, it's a gibor. We were introduced to that term for the first time in Genesis 6, and it doesn't appear again until we're talking about Nimrod. So there's a very deliberate connection that the author is making between the Nephilim and Nimrod. 
So that's the first thing we need to pick up on. And he's actually called a Giborath like three times in this text. So we need to understand that this is a, a real intensification. It's not just a case of, you know, oh, he was kind of like those guys, right? He's trying to be like one of them. And that Hebrew word, what was it? Uh, shalal or? Halal. Yes. Um, yeah, so that that word uh, translated as began, halal, it's, it's an interesting term. Uh, there are actually two words using the same spelling, right? So one is began and the other is defiled. Now, in a normal grammatical construction, you can only put one of those in your sentence unless you're going to uh, repeat it to intensify it or whatever. But uh, it, it makes sense to translate as began. He began to be uh, a mighty one. But remembering that the audience of this text, you know, they're not sitting down reading books like us. You know, we have that luxury. But in the ancient world, you went to the temple, you sat down and you listened to somebody read this out aloud. And you had to pay attention because you were going to hear it once and then you'd have to go home and think about it for the rest of the year before you came back and heard it again. So the idea of using particular words, I mean, because there are other ways to say began, right? You use that particular word because you know that there's another way to understand that word. So when you meditate on this word, you start to realize that this is a negative connotation toward Nimrod. Like he's a bad dude and he's doing stuff that, that isn't good. Right. And we're talking about a, context of ritual or sexual defilement so this is nasty stuff whatever he's involved in it's bad and the connotation of in that sense of beginning uh really breaks down to the idea of driving a wedge into something to start uh piercing like you know think about snake fangs and how they're they're pointy right and they they drive into the flesh they make the hole bigger as they drive in and then the, they inject the venom right or if you're going to uh break a hole in a rock or something you use a wedge to uh, drive into that rock and what starts as a little crack becomes a, a big split right so this idea of the beginning of this thing you know, started out small and became uh, poisonous, if you like, and uh, resulted in a total corruption. And uh, I realize this is kind of vague because I haven't put it in specific context, but I believe that we're talking about some kind of uh, ritual, probably involving bloodshed, and we've talked about blood, um, in order to give himself this kind of divine power right so he's finding some way to connect with the old gods of the pre-flood world right because they're not dead right you know the, the the mortal people of the the pre-flood world were gone but the uh the divine powers you know they're, they're still out there they're still active and is that what you think the tower of babel was all about like basically like the what some people call a star gate trying to 
draw them out, the old gods? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely this uh, idea that this was about connecting with the divine uh, in the setting of uh, an artificial mountain. You know, they've constructed this this mountain, which represents the divine abode. Um, but we have a tendency to think about these things in, in three-dimensional space-time, and we have sort of science fiction ideas about how this all works. You know, um, while I appreciate the understanding of something like, you know, a Stargate or a portal or something like that, that we talk about uh, in our sort of science fiction sort of frame of reference, um, and I don't disagree, I think that for an ancient person, you know, they, they don't have that worldview. They're sort of thinking about this as this invisible world, you know, that isn't in some other place. It's just, it's right there with them. And it's a question of whether it's uh, experienced or not. Um, so you, you go through these uh, symbolic gestures of, you know, building a mountain and doing the rituals and stuff, but you're not trying to interact with a different uh, time or place. It's really just signaling intention. Everything's about intent, you know, and um, going through these uh, rituals that they do. And, and, you know, you still see these um, these things today. Actually, I talked uh, in one episode of the podcast uh, last year about uh, a phenomenon that was uh, big on YouTube for a while called Blood Over Intent. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Uh-uh. It was pretty crazy. So you had people um, writing out a statement of intent, something that they wanted, uh, sort of putting this out there into the into the world. You know, they obviously had some awareness that they're uh, talking to supernatural powers, and uh, they write out what they want and their intention, uh, specifically with the words to bring forth heaven on earth uh, among other things that they wrote and then uh, they would shed their own blood on that document uh, as a means of showing their uh, you know the, the sincerity of that intent right uh, this became a pretty widespread thing on youtube for a while and it was connected back to this guy who was in this uh, satanic cult and was trying to develop a following for himself and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, it still happens now, right? So back in the ancient world, uh, you, you got people doing that kind of thing and they're trying to connect with the divine. They, they want that divine power for themselves. They're inviting these spirits, uh, either the deceased Nephilim or the sons of God themselves uh, to come and, and empower them and give them that divine uh, wisdom and, and glory that, uh, you know, they've heard about from the pre-flood world. So I think that's what uh, Nimrod had instigated and he was trying to get a bit of a, a following, you know, because he had the the known world at the time under his control. And this is how we end up in a situation where the, uh, the gods of the nations, those uh, 70 sons of God that you hear talked about I, you know that's a that's a symbolic number so we don't need to necessarily try and count them and correlate them to countries oh, yeah. that we know totality mm. 
Yeah, well, you've, you've got the, the seven, which is the divine number, and ten, which is the, the human number of perfection. So uh, you combine them, you know, seven times ten, you get, you, you get your 70. So the idea is it's a, it's a combination of human and divine totality, right? So the mm, gods got the split on that too with Lamech. His his uh, revenge was uh, right. it was seventy times seven, and then also when Jesus you know said you are to forgive seventy times seventy. So I mean that's kind of like a dualism, you know, upside down inversion. Yep, yep, that's exactly right, and and that's yeah precisely what what Jesus was doing, alluding back to that story. Uh, for for that reason, yeah. So, so you see this the setup then for what happens at at Babel. You've got uh, all these people trying to connect to the, uh, the the fallen sons of God, and God then uh, intervenes and uh, and disperses them uh, across the face of the world, which I believe is a judgment not just on humanity. Who thought that they could unite against God, uh, but also uh, on those fallen uh, sons of God themselves, um, and basically as a way of saying, "Well, you, you think that you can uh, be a better God over the people than I can? Well, you know, let's see you do it." Right. Yeah. So they they now got to prove themselves, and God knows that they're going to fall victim to their own corruption. And they're going to be subject to judgment. Yeah. And one thing I always uh, found a, a correlation with with Tower of Babel was uh, uh, the god Enki. You know, oh, he, yeah. he was the, the god of the, you know, the abyss, you know, the abuso. He's always depicted, you know, with these wavy lines around him, you know, the, the water. And yeah. he's always drawn with all these, you know, fish around him. And you talked about it in your book, you know, uh, when the flood came, it was a complete annihilation, and I can't remember the the Hebrew word, but it, were, it was for substance or substance, and it meant everything that stands. And you yes. said, well, there was two exceptions to that: there was fish and there were spirits. Those were the only two things that made it through the flood. And what's crazy is with Inky, uh, the story goes is that he uh, mated with a drowned woman and created these seven sages, which were the Apkalu. And how are they depicted? They're half man, half fish, basically right. just swimming their way through the flood, popping up and handing out knowledge to mankind. That's right. I mean, that's just, it's the same story just retold, painting them as the heroes. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what yeah, I love that's... digging into this stuff is like you find all these correlations everywhere if you know what to look for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we have this uh, imagery of, of these, uh, you know, these, these fish gods, if you like, um, turning up uh, in, in the days of... Nimrod, when, when you look in the Babylonian material, you have these various stories of this guy. You know, he wasn't known as Nimrod to the Babylonians. He, he was called Enmerkar. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have various stories of him uh, descending into some cave somewhere, disturbing an old tomb, and 
unfortunately we have uh, missing portions of the text there, but when the story resumes, he's terrified and trying to get out of there because he's uncovered some ancient evil and is trying to take over. And then following that, we have this condemnation of him as someone who had uh, unleashed these malevolent spirits upon the earth. So uh, Enmerkar went from someone who was uh, revered and, and, and feared as a great king to someone who was uh, disgraced and they didn't want to talk about him anymore. So it's very interesting how uh, the, the tides turned for him and, and he'd done something that uh, couldn't be undone, you know, couldn't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Going a little further forward here, and uh, I know I'm sure Justin's got a couple more things, but this to me is one of the things that I kind of want to see your perspective on. And, and we, you know, we, we just talked about the literal days of Noah, but when we talk about in the prophetic sense, you know, as in end times, it'll be like the days of Noah. What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to see a resurgence of just evil? Does that mean we're going to see a return of that golden age, you know, where the angelic beings walked among people, you know, as they, you know, we saw those fallen angels represent themselves as gods to the different nations. I mean, what does that mean, you know, from, from your research? What I think we're seeing worldwide in these days is the desire under the guise of political correctness to honor the gods of the ancient cultures around the world. And I find that very interesting when we consider uh, the, the biblical worldview and we, we look at that with, with those eyes, you know, you can see that uh, society on a global scale is heading toward uh, the, the worship of these uh, old gods. And this is one of the reasons why I think that we need to really make sure that the biblical worldview is uh, talked about openly and, and uncovered for all to see. And, you know, we dispense with that kind of uh, naturalist uh, worldview that has prevailed for the last uh, few hundred years. Um, so the church is equipped to deal with this because we're seeing the resurgence of paganism and idolatry and most of us would just consider that foolish, you know, it's, it's like uh, Halloween dress ups or something, you know, like you don't take it seriously, but I think there are people taking it seriously and we as a church, I think risk getting caught out, uh, you know, caught sleeping, so to speak. Uh, we don't see this coming, right? And uh, as far as what I think the, the future looks like, you know, are we going to see giants and that kind of thing? Uh, I'm not prepared to come out and say emphatically, oh, it's going to look like this or that, right? I mean, the nature of prophecy is such that you really only recognize things in retrospect, to be honest. But... Um, Certainly, we we are trending toward a society that wants to be bigger, stronger, more powerful, 
you know, we're eating more than we've ever eaten. People are getting uh, taller and taller, actually, uh, over subsequent generations. Uh, you know, ancient Israelites were like five foot three. Uh, now I'm, I'm, well, I'm about five eight myself, uh, and a lot of the time I, I look around and I'm by no means the the tallest guy in the room. You know what I mean? Like, um, it it seems to me people are getting taller. Um, we have this tendency now to to entertain. Uh, religions and and religious worldviews that um, haven't been seen for hundreds of years. So I think that the the tendency toward the days of Noah may not uh, may not come about in the way that we think, but um, you know when when Jesus says that that's how it's going to be. He's got good reasons, right? He knows it's going to happen one way or another. Might not look the way that we think. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, those days are coming. And we would be foolish to not read our scriptures carefully and consider the way that the world is going and not see it. I agree with you 100% on that. I mean, it's... I, at the same time that we live in a scary time, we live in an exciting time because we're that much closer um, to those end days when, when, when God will reveal His full plan. Um, you know, it's an exciting, exciting thing to think about. But at the same time, we look around us in our world today. You turn the news on, you turn anything on, and it is, it's scary because exactly what you see. You know, you talk about was uh, Anana, right? As above, so below. You know, you're seeing this this come about in our culture today i mean that the changes you know that, that and they like, allowed a nana in the church now a <laughs> nana's allowed to you know dress up and drag and, and read to your children now and the church accepts this this is this is where we're it's slowly heading in that direction and it, it it's a scary time in that regard um but i think it's you know important that's why you know one of the reasons that we started doing something like this, and I know that, you know, you're pushing forward with your podcast. You know, obviously your book is is excellent. It's phenomenal information. It's so important that we, and as, as evil as technology can be at times, as amazing as it can be, that we can talk to you on the other side of the world right now, that we're able to reach people in ways we've never been able to reach them before. To spread that news, you know, continue on our, and I, we say it, the, the, the Great Commission, you know, keep keep spreading the word. And I think right now more than ever with what you're talking about and how things are changing in our world, people are seeing, you're seeing a, a big push away from things like the, the theory of evolution and all this stuff. People understand there's something supernatural going on. And if the church doesn't accept that and start reaching out to those people, and, and accepting that, if they just tell them, well, no, 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 there's nothing supernatural. We're going to turn people away. We're going to turn people off. You're seeing those shows, and we've talked about this before, the ancient alien show, right? It's been on for over 20 seasons. People want, to, they, they know that this didn't happen by accident, but they don't want to have a responsibility to God. There's something supernatural going on, but we need to show them that the Bible shows all those answers. And the thing was, that was the common knowledge. 
you know, the sons of God, the giants, this whole supernatural worldview that, that today people consider, you know, fringe Christianity was the golden standard all the way up till the fourth or fifth century. It wasn't until mankind, we took it upon ourselves to protect the word of God and protect the divinity of Christ, you know, uh, and that's what I love. Another thing about your book, you know, you go in and highlight these these early church fathers, and there's direct quotes in here, and it basically, you know, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, but I mean, basically, it was saying that if these sons of God in Genesis six remain sons of God, that it puts them on a pedestal equal to Jesus. So therefore, the church fathers was going to protect the divinity of, of Jesus because he was the only true son of God. And there's where the whole uh, Sethite lie come into place. Yeah, that's right. We need to remember that uh, in the ancient world, and particularly in, in Hebrew idiom, to be a, a son of someone uh, isn't by necessity some kind of a biological connection or something like that. We're talking about somebody who's of the same kind or a similar kind, right? And usually to a lesser extent. Okay. So when you have, um, God, the father, the creator, you know, Yahweh Elohim, he is the, the preexistent God above all gods, incomparable and, you know, glorious in his majesty. I mean, you just can't talk about Yahweh without worshiping him, but, uh, these other gods, you know, they're created by him and they're like him to an extent, but they will never compare and they'll never be like him, you know, and that's what makes Jesus different because he's not one of those. You know, he is God. Mm -hmm. He is God. And, you know, once that distinction is put in place, you know, we should have a lot less problems with this worldview. I know we're getting close to cutoff time. We've had you for a while. I don't want to keep you. But one thing is I've never heard, you know, with Leviathan. I've heard, you know, uh, the theories that, you know, Leviathan, you know, was, you know, an actual, you know, creature that, you know, that it was a dragon or a, a dinosaur. Yeah, you know, then I've, yeah, then yeah. I've heard theories, you know, that, no, it's just, you know, uh a, re a representation of primordial chaos. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of theories out there, and I, I thought that I'd heard them all. And, and then I read <laughs> your book, and yep. I love the concept of this, and I just never thought of it. And it does, it makes textual sense. You know, you basically compare Leviathan to uh, the Captain America series, uh, Hydra. That that Leviathan is basically like a military entity. And uh, could you uh, just like elaborate on that a little bit in, in like your, you know, theory of Leviathan? Yeah, so basically what I'm saying is that Leviathan is... Uh, the way that you talk about the embodiment, the totality of forces against God, right? So on the one hand, we have God who 
is embodied through those who are faithful to him, right? That's why we have terminology in the church, you know, where we, we say that the church is the body of Christ, right? With, with the church as the body of Christ, we are those who put arms and legs to God. You know, we act uh, as God in the world. Not, not that we uh, compare ourselves to God, but basically our obedience to God and our allegiance to him and our faith in him help us um, to represent God in the world. And so we act um, on, on behalf of God to the world around us. That's the function of the church. And uh, on the other hand, you have the Leviathan uh, representative of all those forces in opposition to God. So uh, you see this in, in so many places. When we look at the book of Job, uh, which of course mentions the Leviathan in some detail uh, toward the end of the book, um, we've got to realize that Leviathan wasn't just mentioned there, you know, so that God could show off about how great he was, uh, or is, sorry. Um, Leviathan is mentioned in the book of Job because God is saying, don't you see that all the stuff that happened to you back at the start of the book, that, that is the, the workings of the, the forces that think they can beat me, right? When, when these uh, armies of, of raiders came and uh, stole everything and burned everything and, you know, when your family died after a, uh, a storm came and destroyed their house and when you suffered plagues and pestilence and all this stuff, Right, that wasn't just accidents and freak stuff going on. Right, that's that's the Leviathan rearing his ugly head. Right, in every one of those cases where you, whether it's divine beings or people who are opposed to God and to those who are faithful to God, in all of that, this is the working of of supernatural evil coming through on various fronts. Okay, it's the idea of chaos and chaos doesn't just come and, and knock on the door and invite itself in. It surrounds you and attacks you on all fronts, on all sides, um, you know, all at once. And uh, yeah, to deal with it, the only way is to depend on God because he's greater and he's more powerful and he's got it all under control. Right? None of this stuff happens unless God allows it to happen for a purpose there he has for us so that to me is the overarching message of the book of job and you just see this come through again and again uh, through the biblical narrative and i just love the story of uh, jesus calming the sea uh, the disciples are all in the boat and and he tells the wind and the waves to stop and that story is connected back to all this uh, Leviathan imagery and stuff that we read in the Psalms as well. And, and in the prophets, I mean, it all comes together. Uh, and right after Jesus declares 
sovereignty over the sea, which in itself epitomizes chaos, right? And is symbolically uh, demonstrated in the Leviathan. Then they turn up on the shore and they meet this guy who we know is Legion, you know, and he's full of demons and all this uh, bad stuff is happening to him. And this guy's suffering terribly. And Jesus, again, uh, shows mastery over these forces uh, and, and takes pity on this man and heals him. And again, you just see this multiplicity of uh, divine beings and, uh, you know, what we think of as natural forces, you know, like stuff like storms in there, you know, that's not natural forces, man. Like, you know, this is the ancient <laughs> world. They're thinking like, you know, this is this is God's at work doing all this stuff. And Jesus just shows that all of it is subject to his sovereignty. You know, and, and we as the, the body of Christ now, like we don't have the, the command over those entities, but we trust the one who does. Amen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was funny because as I mentioned Leviathan, I don't know if you noticed, I just kept looking over here at Stephen and Grant. That's one of his uh, favorite subjects. And he brought up something in a study that I'd never noticed before about it. He was like, you know, have you ever noticed, he said, of all these creatures and stuff that, you know, God's listing off, he said, he's always saying that I created, that I created. He said, do you ever notice, he said, Le Le Leviathan, it doesn't say whom I've created. It does say behemoth he created, and then it gets to Leviathan and it does not. And I was like, I've never noticed that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can find that back in Genesis 1, too. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I love that's. It's one of my favorite subjects, kind of glossing over that. And there's some, I, I have some, I have some of my own ideas and theories on that. But I think there's, there's so much um, symbolism used with um, the Leviathan idea throughout the Bible. When you talk about that, and especially when we get to Revelation, and we're talking about, um, you know, kind of some of the end times prophecy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, I just. It's 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 fascinating to me trying to, and it, you know it's funny because it's it's changed for me so much. And I, was, I we were talking about this the other night. I said about about six months ago, um, you know, a little about the time we were starting this and kind of getting going with this is that it, all of a sudden I was hit with so much conviction. Like I, I was always brought up Christian, th those types of things. You know, we we we'd learn about these things, but I've never had. It, something hit me and the conviction to look into these things, the, the, to, to the excitement of reading the Bible, the excitement that it gives you to look into it. And all of a sudden, when you really want to, and you pray about it, it jumps off the page at you. God comes at you and, and he, he lets you know, he shows you it's his word. We said that before. It's, that's the, one of the greatest gifts that we could ever be given is, to have that, to have, first of all, God's word that we're given to read. But the fact is that when we read that word, he talks to us. He gives that yeah. back to us. So it is, uh, I don't know, we are we are truly blessed to have that. On top of the fact that, you know, uh, after Jesus, we got the Holy Spirit, which having God live inside of us is something truly, you know, when you saw the... Uh, 
throughout the Exodus. We talk about those uh, where they are going through and, and eventually ended up in, uh, you know, the, the promised land in Canaan. How many times they fell away, and I always, I always, that drove me nuts all the time. They fell away again. Like, it's been five minutes, guys. Come on. But yes. if we don't believe the supernatural side of the Bible and understand that these other entities were able to do amazing things, and on top of the fact they didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, God would come down and sit on the Ark of the Covenant, and the people had to go to the priests to, to be able to talk to God, to go back and forth. We've been given a gift where we can talk to him anytime. And it's it's just, you know, it it's just changed. the Every way I look at things, it's changed how I read the Bible. It's changed so much. It's I mean, And then getting to talk to people like you, it's such a gift because— we get to talk to other people that have surrounded themselves in the word and, and, and just God spoke to you. God's told you these things. God has, has worked through you through this, through, you know, your work too, to help reach people in other ways, to help people strengthen their faith. And like you said, you don't need to, you don't need to believe in giants to go to heaven. That's not the whole point. You know, we're, we're saved, you know, through Christ alone. But after that, after we're saved, what's the point? What do we just stop there? No, we keep digging. Yeah. Well, I've got married, so I don't have to take her out no more or tell her <laughs> she's pretty. No, you want that relationship, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that that was a a big factor in putting my book together because I, you know, I started out well. Look, I just want to know what the deal is with these giants. You know, if they're real or not or whatever. And I plowed through the entire Bible trying to find as much information as I could. And, you know, over time I found that there, there were some other resources, you know, I'm not the only person obviously who's uh, written books about these things. I found lots of people had written books about giants. Um, and you know, they, they were just kind of a bit hard to find at first. And I mean, I got into academic material and all sorts of stuff as well. Um, rather than just the, the popular books. Um, well, you know, which I also, uh, devoured you know i've got a shelf full of them but what i found was really missing was that you just didn't have many people actually putting some application around that and saying okay well now that you know this stuff as a christian like what's it good for right and i mean how how does all this stuff actually benefit you as a believer and then the world around you Right, and that's what motivated me to keep going and, and to write the book and, and, and finish it and how it, it ended up being quite a large book because I'd written some 300-odd pages and went, well, yeah, this is just information that people could learn if they just read their Bible. Um, so it ended up being a lot bigger because I wanted to be able to show people, hey, well, this affects how you live. This is the mindset that you need to bring into your life uh, to see yourself as part of the, the body of Christ, part of the force pushing back the darkness, you know, uh, rebuking that Leviathan, you know, um, loosening the, the grip of the uh, evil powers at work in the world uh, to set captives free, you know, and, and people are captive wherever they find themselves um, outside of relationship with God, you know, and they don't even realize that they're, they're part of that chaos monster, you know, 
they're part of that um, ancient understanding of the sea as this purposeless, uncontrollable, disordered mess, you know, like Jesus Christ brings so much uh, life and purpose and, and structure and meaning into our life. And and yeah. and I'm glad you didn't shortcut this book. And anybody that listens to this podcast and and hear, you know, the way you articulate and, and you, you go you don't just go surface level, you go deep. You're a thinker and I like that. And the way this man thinks and talks, that's how he writes. Just so you know he never says that kind of stuff about me. <laughs> I'm you should be you should be flattered. I'm spoiled. I'm with you every day. I take you for granted, Stephen. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, you guys are great, and I, I actually I, I love listening to your show. So, uh, you know, keep up the good work. Uh, oh, thank you. I've been Appreciate listening to yours that. too, and that's what I'm saying. You know, if if you like what you're hearing, there's more of it on his podcast. And what's great is he him and his friend. They're not as long-winded as me and Stephen. <laughs> they, they they get these down in, in bite-sized sections. They're usually like 35 minutes, ain't they? Yeah. And yeah right they're great. They're really good. Yeah. I, um, I started the podcast to kind of uh, to allow me to kind of develop a worldview a bit for people because one of the frustrations I had with the book and, uh, you know, it, as we just mentioned, it's a pretty big book, but there was just so much to unpack in terms of worldview to help people to understand. And particularly chapter five in the book, like is a real crash course in ancient worldview. Uh, but it really just, you know, it wasn't enough to do it justice. So I thought, well, what I need to do is develop a, a podcast where I can break this stuff down verse by verse and help you see the way that ancient people thought about stuff, right? Because that's going to inform the way you read the whole Bible. So that's what I did the podcast for because, you know, I could have uh, sat all this stuff about giants on the shelf and just went, you know what, I'm going to write my first book about uh, ancient worldview and how to understand Genesis 1 to 11. Um, and honestly, that sounds like the most boring thing ever to most people. They would never pick up a book like that um, and just happily remain ignorant. I thought, well, uh, no, we started. Uh, You'll sneak his nuggets up. in on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> let's talk about giants. And then, you know, once people are past all the superficial, like, Oh, you know, how big were they? And, Oh, well, you know, what did they eat? And what did they look like? And, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, you get past all that, you get bored of it very quickly. And then it's like, well, how do I understand things the way that ancient people understood them? You know, what would they see if they were looking at this? And so the, the podcast now gives me the, the space to be able to unpack that worldview for people. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the podcast, while it was originally conceived to sort of, uh, supplement the book, uh, I, I now see the book as a way of people getting interested in the kind of material that the podcast brings out. And it's, uh, enabled me to sort of create a vehicle by which I can help people to, get a handle on how to read their Bible, uh, you know, the, the way that it would have been understood by its first audience. That sounds about like Derek Gilbert. Uh, when we had him on, he was talking. He said, yeah, he said, we, me and Sharon, he said, started a podcast, he said, just to promote the books that we wrote. 
He said, mm-hmm. and then one episode later, he said, we well, was like, okay, we've done told him to buy the books. Now what do we talk about? And he says, we yeah. never run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I love their, uh, their show. And yeah, for, spoken to Derek a couple of times uh, we, we get on great and uh yeah we're definitely in agreement um yeah the word of god is just an inexhaustible resource and we just learn so much and grow so much all the time um and you know as you guys always say on your show uh you, you got to dig it you got to get in there right yeah. there's so much to be found um if if you just take the time to look yeah well, one more time, do you want to let everybody know where you can find your book and, and your podcast and everything and like website that? website and all that stuff, where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. Everything comes back to the website, giantanswers.com. So you can go there and find uh, the podcast, which you'll also find on all the major podcast platforms. Um, and the podcast is uh, part of the raven creek social club it's a network of uh, like-minded podcasters we uh, have a variety of shows on there you can check those out at raven creek social club uh, dot com uh the book is available on amazon you can get it paperback and kindle uh, again there's links on my website to take you directly there or you can just look it up uh, at amazon.com and uh yeah that's that's about all I have, but yeah, you find it all at giantanswers.com and you can find me on the socials and whatnot as well. I have an author page, um, which is just called TJ Stedman. I have the answers to giant questions, um, Facebook page as well, which is more oriented around the subject matter of the book. Uh, and there's also a discussion group there which is oriented primarily around the podcast but you know all this stuff you can get in there and talk about all that yeah, and you can find us on there we're, we're in that group and and <laughs> yeah. if and if you want to you can get in our group and bother him there because he's there too yeah. so ask ask yeah. questions away and that's one thing too yeah, he, on nice. his website he's got forms you can get on there if you got a, a question that you want him to dive into and tear apart send him your questions and he'll address them on the podcast yeah, that's right. Uh, Q&A is one of the big things on the podcast, which is why uh, I, I call it the uh, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants <laughs> uh, and all this stuff on the primeval history and that as well. So, And what do you do to get people to send you the questions? Do you bribe them or threaten them? Because we've done that and we just, we it's crickets. Yeah, yeah. No, it can be hard to, uh, <laughs> to get people who are brave enough to venture a question um but you know i sort of i get involved in a lot of facebook groups and forums here and there uh, I, I do get questions emailed in and sometimes someone will just stop me like at church or something and and ask me a question uh, so yeah they, they come in from all over the place um but yeah sometimes i i just look in those larger groups when somebody says uh you know, some, some random question, which they've just kind of aired to the community in general. And I say, Hey, would you like me to do an in-depth treatment of that on my podcast? You know, I will tackle that question for you. And, uh, you know, they always come back and say, yeah, I'd love that. So, uh, you know, that's another way that I, I get uh, questions come in. Well, awesome. Well, Tim, 
man i really appreciate you taking your time and uh come and talk to us hopefully we can do this again in the future i really enjoyed it likewise yeah, yeah same here yeah it's been a real pleasure and uh yeah you guys are great thank you so much for giving me a bit of time on your show we appreciate it oh yeah that's definitely. awesome yeah so guys uh, look him up facebook uh, check out the podcast don't forget to get your copy of answers to giant questions you guys keep digging we thank you for listening to the dig bible podcast questions comments or future episode ideas we'd love to hear from you at the dig 423 at gmail.com if you enjoy our content don't forget to share subscribe and check out our facebook group at the dig podcast Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole, you gotta dig.